In this episode, we speak with Matt Brown, founder, CEO, and chairman of Case, the leading alternative investment platform for financial advisors who seek improved access to and education about alternative investment funds and products. Case is backed by Apollo, Franklin Templeton, and Motive Partners, among others. Matt has spent over 30 years at the intersection of wealth management, alternative investments, and platform design. He began his career as a financial advisor at Shearson Lehman Brothers and Smith Barney. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. One area where I'd love to start out on is the alternative investment marketplace. Case is a platform for alternative investments, and it's a space that a lot of people are spending more time in trying to figure out how to invest and what to invest in. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of assets on the platform? Sure, RJ, absolutely. And great to be here and great to be on your podcast. It's always great to have an opportunity to tell a bit about Case and our story. And before I jump in, let me just level set once or twice here for the group. So Case is a technology platform that connects financial advisors with alternative asset managers. So on one end of our platform, we have thousands of RIAs, independent broker dealers that use our platform to access alternatives. And on the other side of our platform, we have dozens and dozens of alternative asset managers in all different areas, such as hedge funds, private equity, private credit, real estate, et cetera, venture. So what we've done is we've built the first true marketplace where financial advisors can use our platform to learn, engage, and transact in alternative investments at scale. So we make it very easy to understand, to implement, and to transact. So that's what our platform does. We've been at it for about a decade. So your question, what type of products are on the platform? On the platform, as I mentioned, are dozens of alternative investment strategies with asset managers that many will recognize the names of. And what we've done is by putting them on the platform, we've made them more accessible from lower investment minimums to smoothing the transaction experience. So private equity is on the platform and it's all various different subsets. Venture can be accessed on the platform. Everything from private credit, private corporate credit to private real estate credit, real estate equity, and then a whole myriad of hedge fund strategies, more liquid strategies. In addition, they're also made available in different investment structures or wrappers. So for example, you could have your traditional institutional drawdown structure where you're raising capital, then bringing it into the fund over time, and then winding that vehicle down over the course of five or 10 years of returning that capital. Or we have those same strategies in what we'd like to call evergreen or ongoing or open funds where you're fully funding the vehicle and the fund is in perpetuity, remains open like a more liquid strategy. Also, we have different structures on our platform that are for the qualified purchaser net worth requirement, 5 million and above, all the way down to the mass affluent and everything in between, such as accredited or qualified client, QC. So folks have various levels of sophistication when it comes to understanding alternatives, whether it's a single family office, multifamily office, financial advisor. How can one come on the platform and truly have a good sense? for the asset in order to adequately advise their client. There's an array of products. Can one go deep into these products and truly feel good about the advice they're going to give their client? 
Yeah, it's a really important question. And it's really one that we've tackled head on. I think a lot of platforms feel that they're in the product game, meaning that they just have a menu of product. We actually believe that we're in the education business. Two areas we tackle that. One is to make sure the advisors or the family offices understand the products, the strategies. And the second is to make sure that they feel comfortable that the appropriate due diligence has been done on the fund. You can understand a strategy, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're comfortable with the actual fund itself. So we hit that from two sides. One is on the due diligence side, we have an independent relationship with Mercer, with a global leader in consulting. They have an enormous team. They do investment due diligence on the funds on the platform. And in addition, the operational due diligence and then ongoing monitoring. So that really acts as a peace of mind, a good housekeeping seal of approval. Now, we know many firms have their own due diligence capabilities. We're not suggesting that you shouldn't do your own work, but this is a, especially for a firm who has light or no due diligence uh, capabilities, this is a way to know that it's been done and Mercer is doing an independent check. We deliberately did not want to have due diligence capabilities internally and rate and monitor funds as we believe that could be a conflict of interest if we're actually a platform delivering a product out. The second thing is that we've made a huge investment and continue to in learning and education. As a former financial advisor, I can tell you, we just don't talk about things we don't understand with our clients. Now, that sounds like common sense, but it's true. We avoid topics. There's a lot of pressure on financial advisors and CIOs of family offices to understand a lot. So what we've done is we've built a state-of-the-art learning platform that really combines light artificial intelligence and machine learning and personalizes a learning journey for each advisor or family office that allows them to understand the asset class overall, understand the actual fund itself, and really helps guide the conversation with their end client and also know how to implement those strategies in a broader portfolio. Now, minimums. Minimums is interesting because it impacts the accessibility. And I guess this is a two-part question. One relates to the access, like direct access that maybe an individual can have. There are certain individuals that wouldn't necessarily need to go through an FA. They can invest directly. Can they do that? I think you've mentioned earlier they can. And then B, can it be lower than 100000 Because I imagine you have more folks that would come into the game and maybe invest in higher volumes. Right. So let's talk about minimums first. We'll take them in reverse order. Then we'll just talk about access more broadly. Before case, most of these funds were holding a five or $10 million per beneficial owner investment minimum. That just puts them squarely in the institutional marketplace. An endowment, a pension fund, a family office, a large family office who can fill out a single subscription document in that amount. When you go into the financial advisor community, they may have one or two clients that could do that, but they certainly couldn't scale that fund across their entire book. So it wasn't a very efficient way to create a model that they could follow for all clients. So what we did is through our negotiation with each asset manager, we've lowered the minimum in private equity from several million down to 250,000. In some cases, the more liquid strategies, 100,000. And now with the rise of interval funds, BDCs, non-traded REITs, those minimums can go as low as 25,000 or even lower. So just by lowering the minimum, the audience that we're able to reach has expanded exponentially. Now, I want to be very clear on one point. Just because we're lowering the minimum doesn't mean that we're changing the requirement of the net worth or the accreditation of the underlying investor. All rules still apply. 
or just making it more accessible and more flexible and usable, the product itself. Mm-hmm. Now, on Access overall, we are a B2B to C platform, meaning that our client is the financial advisor. We made a decision when we launched the platform that we really wanted to focus on the financial advisor. They were the ones and are the ones who continue to give advice to their clients. Now, there is a rise of the independent or the do-it-yourself investor with platforms like Robinhood and Betterment. We're keeping our eye on it. But at this stage right now, Case is really a B2B platform. We also serve family offices that have that institutional qualification as well. So large family offices. You mentioned going back to the topic of diligence and associated with that ratings. Is there a way, I guess, for an investor, a financial advisor to more easily discern among the options out there? On our platform? Even in general, they could like read about how a certain fund is rated somewhere else and then come to the platform. So our standard of care is Mercer's institutional rating system, that same rating system that the largest pension funds endowments use globally. We're not creating a new rating system with Mercer. We're using their institutional system. In order to qualify to be on our platform, you need to have a B rating or higher. That's our standard of care. And those ratings and those reports are on our platform. So as the financial advisor or family office logs in, they're having a journey on our platform and informational and engagement experience. If they want to then zero in on a certain fund on our platform, they're going into that area of the platform that actually highlights the fund's information, their performance, all the facts, including the Mercer report on that fund, the Mercer summary reports, mm-hmm. and the ratings are posted there. If there's any change in that rating, we also alert the investment community that uses our platform. Great. Now, as it relates to other rating systems out there, I'm not too familiar with those or other firms, but we're following the institutional rating system of Mercer. Now I'd like to switch over to volumes, and I'm not sure you know what you can disclose related to volumes and how that's kind of evolved over time. Volumes have been, as you can imagine, increasing into the alternative community full stop. And that's not a case-driven fact or a beneficiary here. But what's really driving volumes right now are just a few things. I'll share them with you. One is just the overall disappointment that financial advisors have and therefore their clients have in the traditional 60-40 portfolio. Most financial advisors, many haven't included alternative investments in any meaningful way. Part of that's because of a lack of education around those products and how to implement them and talk to their clients about them, as I mentioned. So as this shift is happening, which it is, this sea change, billions, if not trillions of dollars are getting unlocked out of the ETF mutual fund traditional community and now being reallocated to alternative investments. So that's happening and Case is a big beneficiary of that. And we're seeing more and more advisors for the first time allocating meaningfully to alternative investments. And we don't see that trend changing anytime soon. Second area that we're seeing is that the asset managers are meeting the demand of financial advisors by creating wealth management-centric products. So they're taking their strategies and they're wrapping them into structures that are more usable and more advisor-friendly, lower minimums, evergreen structures, NAV-based products. There's a whole way to think through that, but as opposed to maybe the more institutional drawdown structure. So product innovation has been a huge piece of this. And then, of course, with the rise of technology and the ability to scale information, scale delivery, scale distribution, it's really reaching a much broader audience. COVID 
incidentally, has been a positive in the sense that it has forced the behavior change of financial advisors who often aren't familiar with technology and platforms and virtual communication to embrace technology platforms and virtual communication. You know, if you can remember, RJ, before COVID, it was very unusual if someone were requesting a Zoom call with you. It would always be on the phone, your mobile. Today, it's very unusual if you set up a call and it's not on a virtual communication platform. It feels somewhat old-fashioned. In 24 months, the world's changed. So what's happened is, in the world of technology, the adoption rates have sped up. That's an industry-wide phenomenon, and that's really impacted alternative investments as well. When I spoke to some heads of the large banks and the folks that run their wealth management groups, sometimes there was this conversation of fees, fee percentages for certain products. And oftentimes, those fee percentages could drive the adoption or the purchase of certain products. So I'm curious as to these financial advisors, the incentive structures that are in place for them with some of these alternatives is that how is that playing into kind of the volumes? Well, the case platform services, the independent wealth community, the RA community, they are largely all fee-based advisors, flat fee, and do not participate in any product commissions. So our community of investors or financial advisors on our platform, that's not a factor. They're only just doing what's in the client's best interest, building out the portfolio on a flat fee basis. We obviously know that the larger brokerage firms, wirehouses, et cetera, still have models that incentivize for certain products to be purchased. It's one reason why the independent wealth community has really kind of raised the flag of independence to remove themselves from that conflict of interest. The case platform just incidentally does not mark up product and then charge more to the financial advisor. So if the asset manager is charging their fee, that's what the financial advisor is getting. Excellent. Now I'd like to switch gears a bit and talk about your investors. The premise of our podcast is about growth investing and you've had outside capital, you now have Motive and Apollo. Can you tell us you know, a little bit about the value that your investors have provided? I know this one's fairly recent. You could talk about prior investors as well. The value that they've provided to you and your company beyond financial capital. I think generally when companies are in a position to take on investors and if they have some ability to kind of select investors, which by the way, is not nearly as often as you might think. It's a two-way street. You may want an investor, but they need to want you back. But in this case, in this most recent round with Apollo Motive and Franklin Templeton, three just amazing firms for slightly different reasons. Interestingly, they all kind of bring something a little bit different. You always, of course, want the cultural fit. You know, you want to see beyond capital. There's the advice piece. But really, as I think about growing the business, one of the most important things any investor, I believe, can bring any company is network power. The ability to enhance your network, your sphere of influence, enhance your relationships, your knowledge faster, open doors, have you think about things slightly differently. So when I think about these three large investors that came in, Apollo Motive and Franklin Templeton, their network power is global. It's deep in finance deep in fintech. They're opening doors to Case and our team that maybe we couldn't get to or would have taken a very long time to get to. A year prior to this round, we did a smaller investment with Eldridge Industries, which you may know, founded by Todd Boley, former president of Guggenheim. And they really had a big impact on the business as well in this category. 
great network, very collaborative, and just there to help you win. That's all you can really ask for. I know a lot of firms say they go beyond capital. I kind of sense very few do. And I think we're very fortunate to have a handful of investors that are just thinking about our success. We're coming up on time here. And I typically like to ask a couple questions to end with sort of on the personal end. Could you tell us about a book that you've read that has had a profound impact on you? If none comes to mind, you can also just make a book recommendation. One of the most profound books that I've recently read is written by a gentleman by the name of Tim Grover. You may know that name. Tim Mm -hmm. wrote a few books. The most recent is called Winning. And Tim was the personal coach of Michael Jordan and the late Kobe Bryant, both on the physical side, but also the mental side. And as a business leader, we always try to push ourselves to be better leaders, smarter leaders, fearless leaders, and focus on winning. And I think that book had a lasting impact on me. But I read quite a bit, and I can tell you it's kind of a wide range. I'm reading The Power Broker right now, which is the story of New York and Robert Moses. Boy, if you want to see someone who knew about winning and wanting to change the game, read The Power Broker. He single-handedly transformed New York City in the 40s and 50s area. Great recommendations. And last question maybe relates to kind of what you just recommended, but leaders. Are there or is there a leader that you particularly find compelling and has certain attributes that from time to time you draw on? I've been fortunate to meet with and get to know many great leaders, not just in business. It can be spiritual leadership. It can be non-business leadership. It could be political leadership. And there's a lot of variety, but oftentimes common ground amongst all of them. As a business builder and in other areas, adversity is a daily event. It's not gigantic adversity every day, but there's adversity all the time. And someone once told me, building a business is a series of very difficult daily problems and then a moment of joy once in a while. So that's what that journey looks like. And I think that's very true. You know, I followed the career of Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone pretty closely and have had the chance to get to know him on a personal level. I think what he's built and the culture he's built at Blackstone has been second to none. He's started the company. He had all the same fears as a lot of young entrepreneurs did. Will I make it? Will I go out of business? And he's built it into a global powerhouse. And that's not easy. And so I think if I had to kind of focus on a model of a leader, Steve and men and women like Steve are those I would be looking at. Excellent. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. 